Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, despite a fairly lacklustre year so far on the ASX, international markets have not been boring. Some of you may have noticed that the S&P 500, which is the 500 largest listed companies in the US, give or take, there's always a couple of nuances there, have recently entered a bull market of all things and are now up 20% on their lows of last year. That's just extraordinary when you consider that the US is facing into what has been described as the most anticipated recession of all time. And there are always those who argue that a recession is not just pending, but it's actually here. Today, I'm joined by the always articulate and well-informed Julian McCormack from Platinum Asset Management. He's always got awesome stuff to say. Julian, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Gemma. How are you going? Yeah, all good. Thank you. Now, You're on record, so nothing new here, as saying the US economy is already in recession. We have more than 50% of all economists in the US predicting a recession currently. That's the highest proportion on record. And yet the data you're looking at is suggesting it's already here and these guys are behind. What are you you seeing? Um, Yeah, what are we seeing? So let me me break down a couple of categories of data. So... um, there's financial stuff, which might be not very relatable to people. And I, I can talk about that in a second. But just in terms of real world stuff that, that might be more sort of um, tangible for people. Um, uh, so rail freight volumes are really very weak. So, you know, rail freight for the week to um, beginning of June, we're down 10% year on year. Uh, rail freight year to date is down sort of uh, mid single digits on last year and down 10% on the year before that. That's rail freight, right? That's stuff moving around the economy. In terms of the, and it's a volume measure, that's measured in rail cars. Um, In terms of the cost of moving stuff around the economy, so we've seen ocean freight rates absolutely collapse, you know, so down 90% from peak. And so why would that happened because global trade volumes are very weak. So Chinese exports uh, month of April were down better part of 9% and they've been down year on year uh, for better part of six months. And then that leads into what gets moved around the US economy. And, and, and then the cost of moving stuff by truck has absolutely collapsed. So spot truck freight rates have gone from around about four bucks a ton mile to around about a buck. 60 a ton mile uh that's that, that's the spot number and then there's a a number that blends together contract and spot that's that's collated by cas which is just a an information service that that number's gone from 169 to 147 that's just an index uh taking january 1 as 100 um to give you a sense that number has never moved down by 10 points without a recession it's just moved down by 20 and then in terms of retail sales which I think would be more sort of tangible for people. They were growing at the beginning of this year, 5% year on year. Uh, They're now growing at 0.6% year on year. Um, That's a weekly number compiled by Redbook, which is 80% of retail sales. Um, Most people can't get access to Redbook. That's on Bloomberg and stuff like that. But if you just go to the um, St. Louis Fed 
information service that's called Fred, and I have a look at advanced retail sales, you've basically not grown retail sales at a seasonally adjusted annual rate since the beginning of 2022. And that's a nominal number. So the real number is very, very weak. So then on top of that, there are these nuances around employment data. So hours worked are going down. Um, uh, dollars earned by household are going down. The household survey within the unemployment data is falling, but the enterprise survey is up. And so the overall outcome of that is it looks like lots and lots and lots of jobs are being created, but the revisions are down and the non-seasonally adjusted number year on year is also down and unemployment claims are ticking up. And so there is this story on the real economy, on the, on the physical economy that we work in that, oh, well, we can't be in a recession because the unemployment rate is really low, but recessions always start from low unemployment rates. In fact, they start at or just after the trough in unemployment because that's what recessions are for. They drive up unemployment in order to slow down the economy. And central banks don't like saying that, but that's what they do. So, um, yeah, all of those real-world indicators look pretty crook. And that's with this ongoing positivity uh, around asset prices, um, sort of on the equity side of things. So, in a sense, your home is like an equity participation uh, equity markets are up a lot. You know, the Nasdaq's up better part of fifty percent. You know, sort of year to date, and and so people look at a few things when they look at are we in a recession or not? The stock market, GDP, and unemployment, and they look backwards. You know, they they tell us sort of what has happened or is happening right now. They don't tell us what's happening in the future. I know that's going to enrage a whole lot of people who will, who will maintain that, no, no, stocks discount the future. They don't really, actually. Statistically, going into recessions, they do not discount recessions going into recessions. And interestingly, they do discount recoveries out of recession. So they begin to go up at, before economies leave recessions, but they don't fall as we go into them. So there's something, there's some sort of human nature thing around that, which I think is really interesting, but you know, topic of a separate conversation. So Gemma, that that's on the sort of physical side of the US economy. And I'll pause there, but I do want to go on and talk about what's happening on the sort of financial side or or maybe more lead indicator type side of the economy. Um, but maybe I'll I'll see if you have any questions about about what I've said to date. No, I think those those physical indicators, a lot of us don't think too much about freight and so on, but they're necessary. I think everyone would be aware that they came off unbelievable highs during COVID. And so some of the baseline numbers are pretty incredible uh, when you remember that we couldn't get freight, we couldn't get things off ships and into port and all these sorts of stories. It's two or three years ago now, but it was it was a big part of what we talked about. So Seeing them come down, some people would argue that was normalisation. Are you of the view that it, we're well past normalising now? Yeah, we probably are. It looks like ocean freight rates are at or below the cash cost of moving stuff around. It looks like the spot 
market in trucking is below the cash cost of moving a ton of material, whatever that might be around the States. So they've come off like a lot, a lot. And, and if people just want to Google freight recession, they'll see that, um, you know, that this stuff is out there. It's on freight waves or in the wall street journal or, you know, reported on a whole bunch of sort of free trade publications as well. So yeah, these are actually really weak indicators. Now they're not, they're not through cycle average type numbers. They're actually very, very weak. And by the way, retail sales growing at 0.6, that, that is extraordinarily weak. And we'll talk a little bit more about credit in a minute, but, but credit provision into the economy is very weak as well. And monetary sort of money supply growth or contractions that might be is extraordinarily unusual. And, and the, the issue with that um, very sensible question of, well, hang on, we had this huge excess uh, in COVID and now it's just retracing. And so therefore the average of that is sort of fine. Flippantly, you can sort of say, look, I mean, that's a bit like saying your head's in the oven and your feet's in the freezer. So on average, you're fine. More cogently, prices are set on the margin and economies work on marginal pricing. And I just ask people to think about their own circumstances. You know, if people's incomes have gone up a lot in the last two years, I'd want to bet them that their amount of credit has gone up. So the amount of debt they have has gone up and their uh, consumption and expenditure has gone up to match that. And so as that comes back down, that affects the whole economy. You know, it's not, it's, people didn't stop two years ago and save the balance. They, they didn't do that at all. In fact, credit provision exploded at the same time. So I'll, I'll run you through what I mean by these financial measures that, that look forward a little bit. But before I do, what I'd say about these indicators or really about what we're dealing with in financial markets is these are probabilistic things. They're not deterministic. So we, we can't say one plus one equals two. It's much more like saying, uh, you know, that the, the probability of something happening in, in the future is high or low. And that's as good as we ever get. And that's kind of frustrating for people. I, I think people feel like, well, we should just have the answer, but we don't because, and no one does, because these are global scale, chaotic systems with billions of interactions every minute. So they don't work on a clockwork basis. They work in a sort of um, probability type basis. And so all we get are these little indicators about the future and um, not little, they're pretty big. So it's a bit like saying to someone, you, you, you work in a mine and uh, we've got extensionometers that measure rock movement and they're beginning to show movement of the rock that would be consistent with a rock fall, but I want you to go into that stope anyway. That's not going to happen. You'd take countermeasures to deal with the possibility of a rock fall. And so all we can say with any certainty is kind of the warning lights are blinking. And when those warning lights blink, it's usually the case that recession is called six to nine months later, backdated to when the warning light started to blink. That's how recessions work, sort of ironically. And it wouldn't matter if analysts on Wall Street and people buying stocks 
expected earnings to fall. Because if that was the case, it would whatever, mate, it's fun. We all we all expect the earnings to come down. It's all good. That's not at all what is discounted in stock prices. It's not at all what we can see in consensus estimates around earnings, which are for earnings to be roughly flat this year, down very slightly, then up 10%, then up 10% the, the following year. Um, that would be totally inconsistent with a recession, totally inconsistent. So you've built in the excess of the COVID stimulus period, then we hold that level of corporate profitability according to consensus estimates, and then we go up 10 and 10. That's pretty unlikely. So that's why it sort of matters. That's why, you know, prices are set at the margin. So let me just run you through what I mean by the warning lights. The first and most obvious is the yield curve as measured by twos, ten, so two-year versus 10-year maturities of the U.S. Uh, treasury curve, that is deeply, deeply inverted. So it's back to 80 basis points inverted, and it's been inverted for just on a year. It'll be a year at the beginning of July. Now, why does that matter? It's not predictive of recession. It's causal of recession because banks are big machines, big financial machines that borrow short and lend long. So most simplistically, they borrow by accruing deposits. You deposit money at a bank, that's a loan from you to the bank with a zero tenor because you can pull it out any time. And then they lend out, say, you know, five to 20 years. The difference between what they're borrowing at and what they're lending at is the net interest margin, and that should be positive. That is positive with a normal yield curve. If we invert the yield curve, and so it costs me more at time zero to borrow than I can lend at year 10 or five or whatever, I'm not going to lend you the money, right? Or I have to have so much fee and other income in there uh, as, as to you know, sort of beggar belief. That's why credit provision slows down. That's why economies slow down with these inversion type events. We've all got used to that yield curve inversion uh, in financial markets. No one even talks about it anymore. And a year ago, it was the hottest topic going around because we've all got used to it. That has corresponded to a, um, I don't want to say collapse, but a, a very, very rapid decline in credit provision into the US economy that really kinked down in March of this year, which corresponds to you know a few of the biggest bank failures in US history. So Silicon Valley Sovereign and First Republic. And, and also it corresponds um, with uh, survey data from the Fed where they go and ask loan officers, you know, people who work at banks, are you tightening or loosening credit? And they're now net 35 to 40% tight. And that's, that's never happened without a recession. And, and then the, on the credit provision side, if, if people, you can just Google this, just go and look for bank credit or commercial banks. Uh, and then it'll, it'll have this name, Fred, that's the, the database of the St. Louis Fed Reserve. Bank credit for all commercial banks is growing at about 1.4%. Um, that's extraordinarily low. So that 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 has never been that low outside of the GFC and Eurozone crisis period in any recession or in any period in the series history. So it's, it's a very, very low number. And remember, it's a nominal number, not a real number. And then that then feeds into money supply and what's happening on the money supply. So if people just Google M2, Fred, 
and then try to and then adjust that to year on year, um, which you can just do on the website. That's negative four point six percent, so getting on for negative five percent. And again, that's nominal, not real. Um, that's never happened in the series history, going back to the sixties. And adjusted for inflation, uh, so as a real number, that would be we're pretty sure that is the deepest contraction in the money supply going back to the Great Depression. And then if you look at core CPI, that's really stubborn. So I know people love to say, oh, well, you know, inflation's fine, it's all gone away. It's really not. So that's stubbornly hanging up at about 5.5%. We'll get another um, CPI print tonight. That might show a decline, uh, you know, who knows. Uh, and with energy prices coming off, uh, that's that's pretty likely. It won't affect core though, because that's X energy, X food. And and so core CPI has been above 5.5% since December of 21. And also US corporate profitability having rocketed higher is now falling. And we can see that. So we can see corporate profits after tax as recorded by the Federal Reserve. And, and that went up to sort of a, a you know a seasonally adjusted annual rate of a bit over three trillion, and that's fallen back to about 2.6, 2.7 trillion. And so that's one of the steepest falls in US corporate profitability of all time. You know, it's fallen 12% at that seasonally annually adjusted rate within a couple of quarters. That's very, very unusual. So so these things are all happening all at the same time. There's another one as well, which is a great indicator, federal government tax receipts. They never fall absent a recession and they've just fallen 10%. It would be the only time they've fallen absent a recession. So you can see there, the indicators are all flashing and people will maybe feel some cognitive dissonance around that. Yeah, but mate, the stock market's up, so it's all good. And I just ask people to remember bear markets have massive rallies. Uh, you know, there was the colossal rally in 01. I think it was like a 40% rally off the lows in 2001. There was a big rally in early 08 um, as well, 2008. Uh, and indeed, the Fed was beginning to talk about tightening uh, again in sort of March of 08 as well. So, you know, these things happen. So all we can say with some certainty is that looks consistent with a recession, which would be consistent with earnings falling a lot. And that's not what's being priced. And that's sort of what's interesting. More than that, we can't say. So aside from massively insulting my question, um, the head and the oven feet in the freezer analogy, which is funny, um, you make a very compelling point about contraction. I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary looking at that data set. When I look at most of the economists I follow, they tend to be, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, there's a lot of positive data they do tend to talk about low unemployment, not a particularly significant uplift in jobless claims, those sorts of things. It's really interesting when you pull all of those figures together. Very easy to forget that the share market's not the economy and the economy is not the share market. But as you say, there's some very interesting stuff going on in the US share market at the moment. Do you want us to talk us through that? Yeah, um, very, very narrow leadership. So um Eight stocks, and these are sort of order of magnitude uh, numbers, but eight stocks have accounted for 90% of the move this year to date uh, on the S&P, and 90% of that move has been uh, multiples of earnings going up, not earnings going up. And that's pretty consistent with that 2001 rally 
when you had a pretty narrow rally in just a few big stocks uh, back then. And that was sort of names like Oracle, Cisco, Dell, Juniper Systems, EMC, Microsoft. And you can sort of see the similarities now, yeah? That the, what this looks like to me, to us, is a move back into the growers because we know they can grow. And whilst not real damage being done in absolute terms to anything cyclical, no real excitement in those stocks. So things like transports, uh, rail, trucking, um, air and sea freight, which you've talked about, um, your broader industrials, Caterpillar, Deer, uh, Rockwell, Honeywell, you know, Illinois Tool, 3M, on and on. They're, they're not really participating. Um, some are down, some are up, but the overall average of those cyclical businesses is about flat at best. And so the net of those two things is enormous divergence between just a few stocks that are growthy and safe at the same time. So Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, uh, Tesla's in there, Google, uh, you know, Meta, a few others. That They've led, but the actual cyclical stocks in there, then they're not going up. And so the relative performance of cyclicals is awful. And that's also definitely indicative of an economy that's that's really slowing. When you know when that when that relativity of performance opens up like that, that's that's generally not a good sign. Now, that that can reverse itself. You know, those big stocks can pause, have a breather, and all the cyclical stocks can begin to perform. You know, your steel makers, your truckers, whatever. It hasn't happened. So, and markets keep on wanting to sort of rotate into those, and then they sell off the next day, pretty much. So. That looks to be what is happening. Can that happen forever? Uh, look, anything can happen. Anything's possible, Gemma. Um, I, I think what is building in is enormous disappointment. So take a stock like NVIDIA, which has gone to better part of a trillion dollar market cap on around about 50 billion in sales, you know, post the upgrade of its last quarterly when it went from doing about 7 billion a quarter of revenue to about 11 billion a quarter of revenue. And so on that delta of 4 billion in a quarter, the stock went up by about $300 billion. Sorry, the market cap of the business. That's a big move. Uh, that was about the third largest move in market cap of all time on a delta of four in one quarter. That's a lot of hope. <laughs> That's a lot of hope. Is NVIDIA a good business? Yeah, great business. Was Oracle a great business? Yeah, fantastic business. You know, it, you know, Oracle and Cisco, like those guys were, you know, doing the networking and building out of the internet for every business and every household in the world, pretty much. And they both fell by, you know, over 80%. So once you get to a trillion dollar market cap company trading on over 20 times revenue, you, you know, it is very unlikely you'll get good long-term returns. It almost never happens for businesses of that. In fact, it has never happened for a business of that size. So um, I don't think that's what people are playing here for, though. Uh, they're playing for, oh, who cares, mate, like the next year will be great. And that begins to be a bit greater fall theory. And there's lots of people in that trade, many of whom are brilliant traders, you know, guys like, Stan Druckenmiller and, and, and the rest and some, you know, but 
they're good at what they do. I doubt they're sitting there for 10 years. <laughs> so that's a difficult game to play and some people play it well and some people don't. So that's how I'd summarise what we've seen in, in this rally year to date. So you're not buying the theory that AI is going to change everything and we're all going to make a basquillion dollars? Uh, AI probably changes a whole lot of things, but it doesn't make us a squillion dollars. And I just ask people to remember, you, you could have perfectly predicted the impact of the internet on everyone's life in 1999 and lost like 90% of your money because the, the stocks just got carried away. And that includes your Microsofts and your Amazons and right. So, um, they don't they don't go together. Uh, AI will change a whole lot of professions. It will change a whole lot of things. Uh, and it's, the change has been building for a long time. It's not a new thing. You know, the algorithm, algorithms that drive AI aren't new, but the computing power associated with them is expanding rapidly. And so you're getting these sort of realizations of the impact of these um, events. That's fine. It just doesn't make you money as an equity holder necessarily. So I'd be very, very cautious of what is emerging in AI, which looks like a spectacular bubble. And bear in mind, we've already had a whole bunch of these in this cycle. So we had the SPAC bubble. We had the crypto bubble. Uh, we had uh, a whole bunch of software as a services business trade to the moon. So the SaaS bubble, we had a whole bunch of ESG and related type things. Uh, so I'm thinking, you know, uh, beyond meat and a whole bunch of charge point and a whole bunch of sort of ESG and related businesses that got untethered from reality and went to enormous uh, valuations and have collapsed subsequent. This is probably pretty similar in terms of the the stock price um, outcomes. I love those analogies and um, that was a bit of a softball question for you, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but um, always one that I love having you answer. Uh, but great analogy, right? Like you can absolutely predict the outcome of technology and the impact a business is going to have on the world and still lose an awful lot of money, which is terribly depressing. So if you're an investor with an international fund at the moment or an international ETF, unless you've been buying directly, like choosing your own stocks, you probably have quite a bit of exposure to what's been happening in the US, this extraordinary divergence between what's happening in the economy and what's happening in the share market, what's happening in the share market with the top eight stocks and absolutely everything else. What are your thoughts for investors in this environment? Well, firstly, talk to an advisor. I mean, I, I really, really mean that. Um, get a coach. If you want to do something well, get coached. It, it's really important. Secondly, don't be overexposed. And I, this is a broader point. I just don't see people thinking in terms of a long period of genuine economic hardship. And I think that's going to look like a real no-brainer looking back on this period in 10 years' time. When core inflation globally is stubbornly high, unemployment is stubbornly low, trade volumes are collapsing, and the early indicia of recession are flashing, that's just not the time to be greedy. So don't have lots of gearing, including your mortgage. Don't be leveraged long everything. Have some cash, have some buffer. Do think about what it would feel like if your job was, if you were worried about your job, because harbour no illusion 
That is what central banks are trying to do. They are trying to push unemployment up. That's what they mean by cooling an unemployment down. There has never been a time of stubbornly high inflation without unemployment going up to cure it. it it's never happened, right? There, there, there are blips, like when we in, imposed the, GFC, um, the GST in Australia and, and notional inflation went up for like, you know, six months and then fell back down. But you've never had a period of, you know, a couple of years of core CPI above five without unemployment having to go up. So I know it feels like it won't happen to you. I know it feels like, oh, this can't be the 70s, the 80s or the 90s type recession. Yeah, it can. Why wouldn't it be? Because we've got all the same stuff happening. You know, stubbornly high unemployment, stubbornly high inflation, grinding economic outcomes because real consumption is falling you know, pe- people will feel it in their everyday life that oh, this is actually very difficult to keep up. That central banks are targeting and it doesn't get easier. It gets harder before it gets easier. It, there's no easy path, I don't think, to getting inflation down without, you know, some some genuine hardship. So that's pretty gloomy, but it's just be sensible about this, you know, just think in terms of, or ask someone if you're not old enough, what you know. What did the '90s recession look like? What did the '80s recession look like? How, you know, how did it feel to puddle through that and build those practices into your own into your own outlook? I think you made an excellent point there. You're the psychology of anyone under the age of fifty. Can I? Hopefully, that's a, a reasonably reflective sample. Yep. Is such that we don't really experience much in the way of extreme economic hardship in this country. Now, I'm obviously there are meaningful proportions of the population who've been through a lot of hardship in recent times. If you were part of the group who lost your jobs during COVID and so on, I apologize. Um, but many of the rest of us have had no meaningful experience of a recession. Um, and I was around during 2008 and I watched a lot of my friends lose their jobs working in finance in 2008. Uh, but a lot of us got through, right? Australia's kind of sailed through a lot of the worst for decades now. So we're not, I don't think, particularly well equipped to deal with hardship. We haven't really thought about it in a great deal. But we do, I will say, all the media requests I'm getting at the moment tend to have a what do people do in a hardship scenario lens on them at the moment. Like you can see the mentality shifting very quickly. Yeah, and again, none of that's predictive. It's just a broader cautionary principle and the indicators are very, they're very stark and they're very stacked one way. And I think Australia can sail through, you know, that's possible. I'm deeply worried about the level of household debt we have here and the embedded difficulty that people have affording a house. Um, that That's, you know, especially your first house. It makes sense if you can swap equity in a house for equity in another house directly and instantaneously, that's sort of fine. For anyone entering the market, either from overseas or first home buyer, pretty difficult. Um, point one and point two, that's associated with very, very high levels of household debt. And also we've all been conditioned by getting on for 30 years of virtually uninterrupted income growth. And there are cycles in economies and the cyclical indicators are not great. 
And that's all you can say at times like this. That's all you can say. So that just means be careful. For those, and we were talking about it before we started recording, but there's a meaningful proportion of the population who are not in financial distress, who own their own homes outright, who are not affected by rising rates, except in a positive way. You know, they're getting a real return on their cash for the first time. Might be backwards after inflation, but you know, they're actually getting a return worth discussing. And those people are still investing. They still, in many cases, need to use that return to provide for their own retirement and so on. They're still looking for opportunities, right? There's a big chunk of the population who are thinking about incoming headwinds and challenges. But for those who are not in that scenario and you are trying to invest for your future and you're trying to see the other side of this, the cycle, where are you guys looking for opportunity right now? So um, the parts of the market that are like reverse COVID beneficiaries. So let me give an example. We haven't really done a whole lot here. Oh, we've done bits and pieces, but it's, it's, a, it's a theme we're thinking about and beginning to deploy some capital in, but it's a good worked example. The auto suppliers globally, autos we used to, not used to, but in, in 2017, we uh, the world made just over 90 million passenger vehicles, um, light vehicles and trucks. And then that went to about 70 in COVID in 2020. And it's back up at around about sort of 80, mid 80s. So there's this embedded shortage in the amount of new vehicles that got produced. The car makers, so BMW, Toyota, Mercedes, blah, 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 they got to pull the price lever. So they got to charge more for their cars. And, you know, because secondhand prices went through the roof and blah, blah, blah. You listeners will all be familiar with that. But the guys who sell into those automotive production systems, Lear and Dana and Borg Warner and Ison and Denso and, you know, all these very prosaic names, Auto Live and blah, blah, blah. They, they, don't, they don't get to pull price. You know, they have supply agreements with the car makers and they don't get to pull price. They do very well when volumes go up. And so we've got this embedded underproduction, which probably gets made up, or at least you go back to, you know, you probably go back to full run rate production of 90 odd uh, in the not too distant future. And so those type of business businesses can do very well. Um, we're, we're quite interested in, Asia and and the industrial systems we see emerging in greater Asia because the, the 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 global economy has changed so dramatically since the last time we went through a protracted recession and I'll call 0809 a protracted recession even though it wasn't that protracted such that you know India China and Japan are all top 5 global economies by GDP and that's so different so we've got all these opportunities in industrials in Japan, in consumption and related, um, and and you know early industrialization consumption in India and middle income industrial and consumption improvement in China, and and those are massive themes and and they're very exciting, and we will just see how that Greater Asia economic region performs through a Western recession. And it probably, like Germany's already in recession. Much of Europe is looking like it's going into recession. The States looks like it's sort of on the cusp. 
we might may not ever have a recession here again. Who knows? I don't know. Um, but we'll, we'll probably have some form of economic slowdown. And China is, in a sense, has already had that slowdown, not just the last couple of years. I mean, really, since its aftermath of the GFC, and and now you've got these immense themes, you know, automation, um, augmented reality, and related uh, robotics. Um, uh, the ongoing e-commerce stuff in China, you know, those those are massive, massive themes in the world's largest, you know, sort of physical economic block and purchasing power economic economy. You know, PPP uh, GDP is the biggest in China anywhere, so uh, globally. So that's pretty interesting. That stuff's all interesting. It's pretty off the beaten track and not all that expensive. We love hearing about things that are off the beaten track and not too expensive. <laughs> Julian, you published some excellent stuff on LinkedIn. It's not, I was honoured to be at this event. You are always posting really great charts and data and insights and you have excellent commentary. Uh, Platinum, you publish some great content also. Where do people go to find more about you guys and what you're thinking? Because it's genuinely uh, of interest to investors. Just uh, our website, Gemma. So we've got a thing called the journal. Um, and look how quarterly we, we we put a lot of effort into that because um, we really do try to explain what we're doing based on what we're thinking uh, in markets. And so, you know, platinum.com.au, there's a section called the journal. There's a whole lot, a lot of sort of short form videos and stuff like that. And then in our investment update bit, our, our quarterly is probably the, pretty yeah that's the most substantive thing we produce and and that's got you know we we try pretty hard to say what we're doing and thinking in there are you happy for people to follow you personally yeah follow me on linkedin that's fine you're not gonna hear a whole lot about me personally (laughs) (laughs) your market commentary (laughs) you as an individual giving market commentary yeah me as an individual i don't exist so um in any uh social media form um i yeah i that's a whole separate conversation. I don't think it's particularly <laughs> good for human brains to do that stuff, but that's fine. Um, but yeah, from a work perspective, I do put stuff on LinkedIn that is related to markets and relatively unfiltered. It's uh, it's excellent, actually. It's super interesting, and in a universe where there's a lot of commentary and a lot of people putting their stuff out there, uh, you genuinely put some thought into it, and it's controversial. It's interesting. Makes you think. Julian McCormack from Platinum Investment Management. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Matt, thank you. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions. Uh, Love hearing whom you like to hear from. Julian's always a favourite. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.